Good morning and welcome to another edition of the show here on 103.5 FMLP WNHH. I have the good fortune of being its host. My name is Michelle Turner. And this morning we're going to talk a little seriousness because there's different things going on at the state capitol that I feel you should be aware of, not only as a New Havener, but as a citizen of Connecticut. In the studio with me this morning, I have the executive director and the deputy director of the Commission for Human Rights and Opportunities of the state of Connecticut. And to my extreme left, as you will not see because this is radio, I have Tanya Hughes. She is the executive director. And on my right, Cheryl Sharp, attorney Cheryl Sharp. Should we call you attorney or Esquire? No Cheryl Sharp is good, too. Okay. Or Cheryl. Oh, Cheryl. Cheryl Sharp is here with us as well, and she's the deputy director. I thank you both for coming in and being here with us today to talk about what's going on and how budget cuts at the Capitol are affecting you. So, Tanya, give me a little history about CHRO. What does it do? Let's, let's make that clear to the public. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to come here. The CHRO is one of the, we believe, is the oldest state-sponsored civil rights agency in the country. We were founded in 1943. Wow. And we have a very important mission, which is to eliminate discrimination in the state of Connecticut, and we do that through enforcement of anti-discrimination laws, um, through employment, housing, public accommodation and credit complaints, as well as through the oversight of the state set aside program and affirmative action programs. Um, So we have a very vast mission with Mm -hmm. a very um, lofty set of goals and and, um, charges that we have to oversee with a very limited budget that's steadily dwindling. And, Is it because people don't see you all as viable in a so-called post-Obama society? I think it's more that they see us more as a nuisance. Mm. Um, People don't really respect that you really need to give civil rights the the due respect that it deserves. People still are being mistreated. People still are being discriminated against. People still are being denied opportunities in um, construction contracts and housing opportunities and employment opportunities. They're still being blatantly called names, um, blatantly denied opportunities on on contracts that the state has invested a lot of funds in. And so at the Commission on Human Rights, we have the responsibility of making certain that all persons have an equal opportunity to everything within the state. And Cheryl, how are particular laws applied walk me through the process if i have a complaint sure um how do you then proceed it's important to first start with the fact that in the state of connecticut we have 26 protected classes which means that everyone is protected pretty much right I, i think part of uh what what tanya has already hit upon is the lack of understanding about our process and what we do as an agency mm-hmm. who we protect and how viable we actually are we are uh, there when people need us to be there but when people don't feel that they need us then we're not on their radar so if you're not feeling discriminated against in employment that 
you were not denied a promotion mm-hmm. or you weren't hired because you were pregnant or because you were 55 and you want to change careers and now mm-hmm. you want to get a job somewhere. If, if that's not happening to you in the moment, then the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities will not be at your the top of your list for uh, we definitely want to make sure they get enough funding. Right. Um, and so I think that that's part of uh, what the issue is. The, the second part of the issue is, is this, that we are the enforcement agency and we are enforcing laws that people want to say are not necessary now because we are living in a kumbaya world. Mm-hmm. Well, during this last uh, election season, that uh, theory um, ha- has been obliterated. Um, uh, racial injustice has been normalized. Um, objectification of women has been normalized. Uh, discrimination against Muslims has been normalized. All of this is very unfortunate, and it's because of the rhetoric that has uh, been allowed to uh, persist. Now I want to shift gears to your actual question, which was about our process. If you believe you're the victim of illegal discrimination, you can file a complaint of discrimination. We have an intake officer who will assist you with filing a complaint of discrimination. Okay. Once the complaint is filed, it is served on the person you're suing, the respondent, mm-hmm. the person who you are telling the commission engaged in discriminatory practice. We then conduct a CAR, which is a case assessment review, and we look at the complaint, the answer, any rebuttal statement that was provided by the complainant once the complaint was filed, and we look at Schedule A responses. A Schedule A is just like an interrogatory. We're asking the respondent to answer a set of questions mm-hmm. that will help us find out what actually uh, occurred um, in the given incident that's being filed with our agency. We then have a team of investigators. We have four regional offices, one in Hartford, one in Bridgeport, one in Waterbury, and one in Norwich, where we take complaints so that uh, individuals who believe they're the victims of illegal discrimination can go to a place that's not so far away from their home and file a complaint. We try to make the process open uh, to the public. We then have the best number one mediation uh, program. Pro- program in the country. And after a case is card, case assessed, reviewed, we then have mandatory mediation if we retain the case. Now, some cases are dismissed through the car process because we don't have jurisdiction over them or there's no reasonable possibility that further investigation will result in a finding, a reasonable cause, or it's frivolous on its face, or there's mm-hmm. a failure to state a claim. There's this legal terminology and legal theories that we use, and sometimes right. those cases get dismissed. After mandatory mediation, then the case goes for full investigation, where we have an investigator who is a neutral fact finder. And what is a fact finder? They're here to listen to your side, the complaining party side, and the responding party side. And then they, in their professional judgment, will make a determination of no reasonable cause to believe that discrimination occurred or reasonable cause to believe that discrimination occurred. We also have offshoots to our process. We have something that's new called early legal intervention. And where the issues that are being raised are ones of a legal nature purely, then a case can go directly to public hearing because we really need an administrative law judge to decide the law on the in, Then in and the there. Then and there as opposed to determine facts. Mm-hmm. So investigators determine facts judges decide what the law is and they make a finding of discrimination or not. And so after the investigator conducts their investigation, they issue a summary to the parties. The parties get an opportunity to comment on that summary. It goes out as a draft. And then once those comments come in, we finalize that decision and the case is either dismissed or it's certified to public hearing. If it goes the alternate route, that of early legal intervention, 
a full investigation would not be conducted. It would go to our legal department to assess whether the case should go forward straight to public hearing because of the issues raised in the case, legal issues that is, or whether the case should be uh, receive a release of jurisdiction and that individual get to go into court, um, or if it, a directed investigation should be conducted. And that's where an attorney looks the, at the case and says, we these are the factual issues in dispute, resolve them and make a determination and then send the case either back up to the legal department so we can deal with the legal issues or uh, the case then, you know, gets dismissed at no, no reasonable cause. So that's just one process and one element of what we do. And how long does that take? It It sounds like it varies. Um, varies. we're, We're supposed to complete an investigation at the regional level within two years. Um, in prior years, we had a very extensive backlog where mm-hmm. over, I would say, a pro- when I became executive director, probably 60 percent of the cases were aged over two years. Uh, since that time and in, in three and a half years, we've been able to eliminate that backlog. Mm-hmm. We have under one percent aged inventory um, and we have a much more streamlined process. And so we've been able to see case closures as early as Three to six months, you know, and, and, and definitely under a year. That's been our goal. That's great because it sounds like it's stepped up. Exactly. Like streamlined some Justice things. Justice delayed is definitely justice, justice denied. denied. Absolutely. We, we actually have pre-answer conciliation now. So we, we on an occasional basis have cases that resolve within 30 days because mm-hmm. a respondent will be served the complaint and they'll call us within 10 days and send us a letter in writing and say, you know what? We want to enter into a pre-answer conciliation, which is similar to a mediation where you talk to both sides and see what they want, what they're willing to give, and then you resolve the matter. So we've seen some success there. That law went into effect in 2015. So we're consistently working with the legislature to try to improve our process and try to make sure mm-hmm. that the parties, that the public, that the people who rely on us and rely on our services get the best possible outcome. Uh everyone's not always happy because it's an adversarial process. You have two sides. One side is going to feel like they won. The other side is going to feel like they lost um, unless there's a settlement. And, and in that, in that part of the process, do you have people who contend and, and how does that work? Yes. So you have two sides. You have a complaining party, the complainant, that's what we call them. And you have the responding party or the respondent, the person Mm -hmm. that's being sued. And, a lot of times it goes like this. The complaining party believes that they were discriminated against because of their protected class status. Those 26 statuses I referred to earlier. Mm-hmm. And they're adamant about it. They say that, you know, I wasn't promoted because I'm pregnant and that's why I didn't get the promotion mm-hmm. or because I'm a woman or because I'm black or because I'm Hispanic, whatever that protected class basis is. And the respondent, their defense is that it has nothing to do with their protected class status. The person wasn't a good employee or they weren't qualified for the promotion or there were other people who were better qualified. And so it is very adversarial by nature, by nature. because by nature. it is yeah. a suit that is being filed. Right. And so normally when people file lawsuits, it's because they can't reach a resolution on their own. And so that's where the commission is there to assist and try to get people to reach a resolution. But if they can't, if we can't get them to you know, reach a resolution uh, voluntarily, um, then we have to investigate and we have to make our determination, uh, our initial determination, and then the administrative law judge has to make a final determination if the case proceeds to the process. Most of our cases settle, or a lot of our cases 
actually settle. Mm-hmm. And we don't just do individual complaints of discrimination. Mm-hmm. We also look at systemic discrimination. Okay. Which we've heard right. a lot about in the national media. Right. Are right. there systems of discrimination in place throughout not just the state of Connecticut, but throughout our nation that create this uh, environment where people, that is right for people to be treated unfairly or uh, differently based on their membership in a protected class. And so we look at those issues as well as a, as a full commission. Um, we, do, we do consider that. Um, and again, this is just a fraction of what we do. And it's mm-hmm. amazing because we only have 67 employees right now. I was going to say, mm-hmm. you, you sound like you, you, you know, it's something where you have a staff of more than 25 people. You need that, right? Well, we've risen to the call to do more with less. Um, we've been appropriated for 85 positions. We've only been allowed to fill up to 67 mm-hmm. at this point. We are we have very critical positions that have remained vacant, such as a legislative aide to assist us in um, for, forwarding our position at the legislature. Mm-hmm. We're, Lobbying for We're you. having to utilize our attorneys you know, who should really be working on the cases mm-hmm. and preparing them for hearing, but they're having to utilize their time going over to the state capitol to lobby on our behalf. We're, we're short attorneys. We're short investigators. We haven't been able to replace many of the clerical positions. But in spite of that, we've been able to do so much with so less because we have such a committed staff. And I just want to throw out there, and Italian doesn't mean lobby in the legal sense of the Correct. word lobby. Right. Correct. She means to um, advocate, Ad- our advocate on our behalf and, and testify Correct. because I don't want someone to listen to that, that and right. think that that's it right. That you're doing any the, kind of money or anything right. like that. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 let me say <laughs> that <Yeah>. yes, <laughs> that absolutely that is Correct. not the type of lobbying we're, we're talking about. And now I was going to say right. <laughs> <laughs> And I was going to say, is that the appropriate term, lobbying, but it's really advocating, more or less. So with you being the bulldog for the state, so to speak, why is it, and either one of you can can tackle this one, um, why is it that it seems that they're beginning to feel like your budget should be less or that your services aren't as necessary? Well, it's probably because they consider us as the bulldog, but we're not really the bulldog. We're the watchdog because early in the process, we have a neutral position. You know, we aren't on the complainant side or the respondent side. You're fact-finding. We're for the state's interest in eliminating discrimination. So, yes, we're just fact-finding. Right. And and bulldog, that's an interesting uh, term. (laughs) that you chose there we're a watchdog agency that's one aspect of what we do but in addition to being a watchdog agency we um are an enforcement agency an advocacy agency and an education and outreach agency so while we have some bulldog tendencies or watchdog (laughs) tendencies because we have to make sure that there's no discrimination correct and that is important that is a stated mission of the state of connecticut we're supposed to be a progressive state we see oftentimes <clears throat> our governor makes statements about uh, some of the other states that are more uh, conservative in their mm-hmm. response to civil rights violations. Um, and in the state of Connecticut, we're very progressive as a state and we're here to eliminate discrimination. I think what causes us to um, to be under fire, obviously, we're in a, a, a financial crisis as a state. Right. Obviously, we need to have more revenue generating activities in the state. But certainly the CHRO is not crushing the budget. Our, we're only appropriated. <clears throat> 
$6.4 million. Of that $6.4 million, we've only been allotted to use $4.8 million. So there's a holdback already of, of, of funding. Of, of a significant a million, amount of Yeah, our over a million dollars has been held back. So like, um, like our executive director has already said, we have critical positions that haven't been filled. I testified on four bills yesterday, mm. and uh, I was there to testify on a bill today. I will be at the legislature tomorrow to test on a, to testify on a bill. Um, we have we have a regional manager position that's vacant in Bridgeport, and so our, the manager in Waterbury, which covers New Haven County, is is balancing between Waterbury and Bridgeport wow. as well as Cheryl and I wow. are going to make certain that the work continues to get, get out. done. Right. Yeah. But it's not sustainable. And that's what we're saying. We owe it to the public. We owe it to the citizens of the state of Connecticut mm-hmm. to offer speedy quality responses to their concerns. Discrimination still exists. It's not a figment of anybody's uh, imagination. imagination. We don't live in a post-racial America and the commission protects more than just race, color, and ancestry and national origin, because that's also the belief. And that's also what we've heard, is that that's the sole focus of the agency. We're also protecting individuals with disabilities. If, you, if there's a failure to accommodate a student in a school, a complaint mm-hmm. can be filed with us. If there's a failure to accommodate an individual in their employment, a complaint can be filed with us. If your landlord fails to, build, fails to allow a ramp so that mm-hmm. you can have access to your place, that's a complaint that could be filed with our agency. So we have a really broad range of things that we do. Also, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in um, prior to the municipal exemption, which I'm assuming we'll talk a little yes. bit about, there was $7.6 billion worth of school construction that happened in Connecticut. I didn't say million. I said billion. $7.6 billion. And there was no oversight in terms of equal opportunity being offered on those state-funded uh, contracts, contracts mm-hmm. where the state of Connecticut gave money using taxpayer dollars and gave money to build schools, which is an important mm-hmm. thing because we want our children educated, but we also want to have a strong economy and we want to make sure that women owned businesses, ethnic minority owned businesses and disabled owned businesses get a fair opportunity to participate in the receipt of state funded uh, dollars mm-hmm. because they are a part of this state and they pay taxes as well. We talk about building our economy because we, we just went before the appropriations committee. We're talking about building our economy and where we can save money and how we can generate funds. We generate funds by not having a mass exodus out of the state of Connecticut Correct. because people can't take care of them themselves and their families. This is a way the program, the set aside program that we have oversight over this is a way to keep small businesses in the state of Connecticut because 25% of the state funded projects, project dollars have to be set aside. An attempt has to be made to set aside for small businesses, which is currently defined as those businesses with uh, $15 million or less or less in, in, in revenue in a given year. Um, that's very important in this economy. Because if families can do business here right, and they can take care of themselves and there's some sustainability, then they will stay in the state of Connecticut. If they're not getting work and not being selected for projects um, because they're small, then that's a problem because it's not other Connecticut companies that are getting the work. It's companies outside of the state of, the of Connecticut. State. Mm-hmm. And they're it's, utilizing outside workforce, you know, right. to fulfill that right. contract. Right. 
they're taking well, the funds uh, out of the state. Since, since you've already led me down the road, <laughs> <laughs> you all have had oversight of this program since October, October of 2015. Of That's the municipal exemption. But prior, but prior to that, to that right. it was in uh, the contract compliance law went into effect in 1988 or 89. So it's been many, we have many years of experience, and that was one of the cu- questions that we got. Oh, they're not mm-hmm. going to be competent enough to administer the program. Who could be more competent, competent than you right. all? It yes. seems exactly. this, this is what this is what we do. We have to, we train people. We train the towns because that's another thing we keep hearing. Right. Like it's so burdensome on the towns. What do the towns have to do? Not not much. It is not that much of a cost. It is the contractor who files the affirmative action plan with our agency. It is the general contractor or prime contractor and the subcontractors who file an affirmative action plan. And guess what? We have technical assistance that we provide every single month. We provide technical assistance. So if people have questions, they can come to a technical assistance. If they have questions, they can contact the investigators in that unit. So we're there as a resource. Um, so it's, it's really some of the, the theories and the arguments that we hear are just... Uh, just that counter intelligence. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> is it more fluff than it is exactly? You know, fact. Uh, in the it's world alternative of alternative facts, facts. Smoke, it's a smokescreen. <laughs> it's a diversionary tactic. But now, the mandatory mediation process. If in fact that's taken away, then what effect does it have when it comes to? It's going to create that backlog that I spoke about earlier. Early on, all of our cases were retained and all the cases had to go to full investigation. A full investigation will take up to two two years in time. And then you have a very small staff that's constantly dwindling. So how many cases can one investigator juggle mm-hmm. at one time? They mm-hmm. already are juggling 50 or more cases right. per person. You take the mediation out of that, that's going to raise their caseloads to maybe 100. And then how how valid an investigation can they really conduct Mm -hmm. when they're under those kind of time constraints Mm -hmm. because they have statutory time constraints that they have to adhere to. So the mandatory mediation brings the parties together Mm -hmm. and And it forces them to hear the other person's side, the values and the weaknesses of their case. And does that mean you accept less cases? No, No. we we don't have a choice. The the statute makes clear if you believe you're the victim of illegal discrimination, you can file a complaint with our agency. And it doesn't matter what your staffing or funding is. Absolutely. Right. It doesn't matter. And we are, we have, we have a work sharing agreement with the EEOC, which mm-hmm. is our federal counterpart. And so we have to take these complaints. We take the complaint and we dual file it with the EEOC, our federal counterpart. Um, the, the, the issue with the mandatory mediation that uh, this is an, a major issue that's not being discussed. There's a due process issue. Why is it that a statute would be enacted to allow respondents to opt out of mandatory mediation? But it wouldn't allow a complainant to opt out of mandatory Mm -hmm. mediation. So if the respondent wants to mediate, then the complainant is going to be forced to mediate. But if a respondent doesn't want to mediate, then the complainant is just out of luck and there's not going to be a mediation. And the process just halts. Right. That 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 is there's no equity Mm. there, uh, first of all. Second of all. It's against the interest of the respondent, which is why I'm not understanding why this was proposed, because the longer it takes to get an investigation done, the longer it takes to get a public hearing done, the more the damages uh, uh, increase because back pay is going to be more. 
So um, it's in everybody's interest to mitigate the damages early on to assess exactly mm-hmm. yes. what what is the complainant looking for? Mm-hmm. What would it take to resolve this right away? You know, is it back pay? Is it a change in the work condition? Sometimes the respondent doesn't even know what the complainant what the, is really upset yeah, about. Yeah. And when you bring the parties to the table, they're finally able to hear what's being said because they finally get the attention of the person. And it goes to the point of, well, you know, maybe that is something we can fix. Exactly. Maybe that is something we can do. I didn't realize this was happening. Or we can't do that, but can we do, do this? this? Exactly. Yes. It opens the conversation. It opens the conversation. And, our- and that's why we've been so successful. I mean, each year we've had more and more percentages of cases that have been resolved at mediation. Mm-hmm. And our early legal intervention program has been extremely successful. So why would you penalize a program that's being successful. That was going to be my next question. And I guess I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to bring some folks in from the state capitol so they can tell me right. and the audience exactly what it is. That, what are you looking for? Right. What you're looking you for you and need this. how effective exactly. things can, could or could not be right. with you taking money. Exactly. You be- know, with the set-aside program, they're saying they want to delay it. How can you delay something that's been up and running successfully for over a year? And, and so it, why would you delay that and delay the investment and the time and the well, resources that has already... Not that you can speak for them, right? but what are they, they seeming to they, say to you? They're saying that they're trying to give a, a... It's a relief package for municipalities. But that's why I started with, what is the relief to the municipality? Because mm-hmm. the municipality, the cost of this uh, program isn't falling on them. It doesn't fall on them. And the cost to the taxpayer for funding the CHRO is less than $2 a year per taxpayer. Wow. $1.77 per year to have a state agency where you can file a discrimination complaint if you are discriminated against in housing, credit transactions, in school, if you're racially profiled, Mm -hmm. in your employment, where we uh, ensure through our affirmative action plan reviews that there's fairness and equality in uh, hiring and promotions in state agencies, where we're ensuring that... um, Small businesses in Connecticut and minority-owned businesses in Connecticut are getting equal opportunity. Just opportunity is all we're talking about. And it's such a low threshold that they have to adhere to. Why wouldn't they voluntarily want to provide at least a good faith effort Mm -hmm. to provide 25 Mm percent of your business to small businesses and then 25 percent of that? to minority businesses or businesses that are owned by disabled persons. Why wouldn't you want to do that? So what would happen to this funding? What they do is just they take the funding from the CHRO, and the the claim is that in two years, then we'll restart the program. But look at all of the lost opportunity. Already Mm. this program went into effect in October of 2015, the municipal exemption portion of it, and there's already been over $100 million of contracting. Wow. That has occurred. That has been so reviewed. If we're giving, as a state of Connecticut, hundreds of millions of dollars, we don't have the six point four million dollars to fund the CHRO, and we don't have the less than one million for the People oversight necessary to run the municipal mm-hmm. exemption program because that's the real dollars and cents that we're talking right. about. Exactly. And right. we did a chart last year for our legislative session, mm-hmm. and it showed that the Commission on Human Rights whole budget, as compared to all of the other state agencies. It's such a small sliver that you can't even see us in the pie chart because that's how little money we get as a state agency. And you hear 
you're just getting a glimpse into how much uh, oversight we have. Mm -hmm. We are doing school bullying cases. We go into schools and provide training. Mm -hmm. We train the students. We train teachers. We train superintendents and principals. We do racial profiling. We sit on various boards. We try to make sure that there's no racial profiling in the state, that people understand what implicit bias is. We mm-hmm. offer the training. We have business training, a business training institu- institute, and we give free training to businesses because we're not trying to have gotcha moments. So we, how many how many people really are aware of what you do? I mean, we, we do the it's, education it's, and outreach. We're constantly, you know, going around the state. We have the four state offices. We, we're trying to set up TV programs on the public access television sta- mm-hmm. stations because... It is amazing that as we go around the state, people still are not aware of us. But surprisingly, there are a number of people that seem to find their way to our offices (laughs) quite frequently. (laughs) So we are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We Uh have our own blog, Mm -hmm. CTCHRO. We have our state uh, website. And we get a lot of traffic on our uh, Facebook uh, page. Mm -hmm. And and it's been increasing uh, over time, especially, again, since this uh, election cycle. Um, we have more followers on Twitter now as well. Um, we have a really robust internship program. We're mm-hmm. training the next generation of civil rights leaders, attorneys, um, people who go into public policy. I and so a, a lot of people know about our agency, but there are certainly a percentage of the population that does not. And we uh, are attempting to, this is why we're doing this show, and we want to continue to do uh, uh, shows where we can uh, express the services that we provide. But we also need community support because we're out there fighting for uh, the people. This is not for us as individuals. This is so that when someone is discriminated against, there's a place to come mm-hmm. to file a complaint, to get mm-hmm. answers, to receive assistance. Um, if you need training, that we can provide it. We're also friendly to businesses. It's For such a long time, there's been this perception that the commission is anti-business. Mm-hmm. We believe civil rights is good for business. So nothing could be further from the truth that mm-hmm. we're anti-business which is why five years ago we started our business training institute to offer free training to businesses, sexual harassment training, how to accommodate Mm -hmm. your employees, best practices. Uh, We have crisscrossed the state of Connecticut and really the nation because we are seen as the leader in civil rights law enforcement. And enforcement, correct? Right. right. And so, we have a very robust website as well, mm-hmm. uh, gov slash chro and there you can find out how to file a complaint you can find out about our public hearing process you can find out about affirmative action and contract compliance and so you can hit any of those things find links to any activities that we have coming up um, public uh, press releases and things of that sort so Mm -hmm. you know we want the public to know about us that we're there for them you don't have to file any fees to avail yourself to our services you know and like cheryl said we we protect 26 different class bases so that covers race religion sex you know, sexual age, orientation, sexual orientation, disability, mental disability, intellectual, national uh, origin. disability. The list goes on and on. So we protect everyone. When we do trainings, we ask people uh, who in the room do they think is not protected by our statute. <laughs> and so a lot of times people raise their hand and they say, oh, well, white men. And we're like, no, because white men have a color. They have a gender and we protect both of those. They have a race. 
all of that is is and they is may protected. fall in other categories. Yes, they have an age. They could have a physical disability. He, right. they, they, everyone has a sexual orientation. So we offer protection to everyone, and so we really are an agency for the people. Um, and it is interesting to us that we get more uh, national recognition than we sometimes receive in our own state. This year, Tanya and I went to the White House. We were the only state agency invited. One of our hmm. um, one of our uh, esteemed colleagues wow. that we work with worked with uh, consistently from the Department of Justice passed away. Azika Jennings. We did a lot of work with him on education, outreach, mm-hmm. and advocacy, and sat on many panels uh, with him. And we were invited to the to the White House, and we looked around the room. And we were the only state agency that was there, the only state agency invited. So it shows the import of the work that we're doing in Connecticut um, and how important it is to people outside of Connecticut. It needs to be just as important, if not more important, to the people in, in Connecticut. Connecticut. Uh, because if Absolutely. the value is being seen as we go to conferences and regional conferences with the EOC and with HUD, if other states can see the value such that they're asking us to send them a template so that they could set up their agency in the same way that mm-hmm. our agency has been set up then that tells you something about how great, one, the state of Connecticut is and how great our agency is in how we protect and the has people been. Yeah. and has been. Um, and we're not flawless. We never have been. And I don't know what we try to make it so that we are. But that's a difficult thing to be is flawless. And so when we make errors, we ask people to bring them to our attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing and that everyone is getting the services that they expect and that they desire. Um, so it's, it's just important for us that we get the support in the legislature when they have public hearings on the commission, that people come and talk about the so, need for civil rights. In the so community. how does one find out it's that on, you, you know, that there are public hearings involving your budget or, you know, there's public testimony? How does one find out besides maybe social media? Well, social media is the best Probably way the to best find because out. Because okay. things come up so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, it can change from one day to the next. And so to follow our public social media accounts would be the best way to find out. Uh, we'll be blasting the information every day. I always repost anything that we mm-hmm. post from our site. Um, so if you follow our social media. Yes. Facebook. CHRO. Mm-hmm. CTCHRO. Do you have anything that you're doing live? Facebook Live? Any of that? I've taped a few of our sessions, Facebook Live. We did our um, racial profiling edition during one of our library tours. We're going to some of the major libraries throughout the state, um, trying to go to the people where they are, you know, and not not try to bring them out for extra occasions. Unfortunately, it's just hard to get people out to talk about things that they need to be focused on. Maybe you can give us some suggestions about where we need to be. I, I noticed some people have been going to the barber shops and the mm-hmm. beauty salons. You have mm-hmm. to find the people where they are and make certain they have the information. Um, but we're doing everything we can every month. We produce, Cheryl produces, she runs our uh, public outreach department and she produces a six page report that we report to our board of commissioners about. And so we're all over the state, traversing the state mm-hmm. on all issues, you know, and every element of what we do at CHRO, trying to get the word out. So sidetracking a little bit here, um, as you know, New Haven's a sanctuary city. And um, we have been 
loud in our protest in protecting those rights for people coming into New Haven. What I found out recently was that New Haven is probably one of the most active cities in the United States when it comes to taking in refugees. Mm. So how do you help? Where, where do you step in with organizations that are protecting or bringing in people to this country? We, we just did a presentation. I, I just sat on a, a panel um, for because the issue is that now there's a lot of fear surrounding the immigrant population. People are afraid to go home and visit their par- parents yeah. because they don't wonder if they can get back into the country. Little kids are afraid to go to school because they feel like if they leave to go to school and they come back home, their parents are not going to be there. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. So I talked to a group of uh, superintendents of schools and principals uh, that were being funded by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. And w- what the discussion surrounded was the fact that if an individual is being treated differently because of their ancestry or their na- national origin, their nation of origin, they can file a complaint with our agency. Mm. It doesn't matter what their uh, status is in this country, their legal status, if they're le- legally here or not, is irrelevant to us as a state agency. Um, they have the right to file a complaint. Far too long, uh, for, for far uh, too long, uh, we have um, made a vulnerable population even more vulnerable by making them believe that there were no protections out there for them. Mm. And so then you have individuals who are subjected to sexual harassment and sexual assault. Well, if you're sexually harassed in your employment, you could file a complaint with the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. If you're denied a housing opportunity because of the country that you come from or because of the religion that you practice, you could file a complaint with our agency. So we go, we provide training, we provide the information, we have a complaint process that allows individuals to file a complaint with us. Uh, we, we are not, um, we, we don't release if there's information regarding someone's legal status. Um, that is not something that we uh, go into. We don't ask people, ask people mm-hmm. about their legal status. Um, we just allow people to file complaints with mm-hmm. us when they're believing that they're the victims of illegal discrimination. And we've had individuals who have filed, multiple individuals who have filed complaints where then the respondents will come in and say, well, you know, this, um, we don't think this person is legal, but they don't, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't even, you know, be in this mm-hmm. country. And, and then the, the, the our position is, well, the, you employed this person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So explain the minimum qualifications they need to file a complaint. So if you need to file a complaint, that you have to have, you know, have to state a claim. You have to tell us what happened to you. Give us the particulars. And you have to state why you believe you were discriminated against. So typically, if we're talking about this particular um, issue of um, safe communities, um, yes, an individual would come in and say that, you know, I went to rent this apartment and I was denied because um, I am from India. And uh, it's based on uh, the fact that I'm from India and that's my nation of origin. And mm-hmm. uh, the person who is the landlord uh, said that they don't rent to Indian people. And so that person would then file a complaint with us and fill out an, a complaint affidavit and sign it um, and say that I was denied this this rental opportunity based on my protected class status, my nation of origin, my ancestry, my color. If it has something to do with their religion, if you know some people at, at this point, because there's all this fear that's been created right. surrounding uh, Islam and Muslims. Um, and 
and and individuals may say because I am a Muslim they won't rent to me or I mm-hmm. I was not accommodated at work and I was not allowed to pray or I didn't get a promotion because I am a, a Muslim those individuals could file a complaint with us but you have 180 days from the date that you knew or should have known that you were being discriminated against okay and so okay. what that means is you have some instances where you don't know that you're being discriminated right. against right because you work in a job alongside a coworker there who's a male that male is being paid, you know, $25,000 more a year than you are. And you have the exact same title and exact same credentials. One day that male drops his check on the floor. And then it's like, is right. this your check for like the whole year? Or is right. this just for the month? Because you're getting way more than I am. So that's the date that you realize that you were potentially being discriminated against because you're a woman and there's an unequal pay issue there. So it's 180 days from the date you knew or should have known of the discrimination. We also deal with, uh, you know, issues in schools because sadly, as it relates to sanctuary uh, cities, mm-hmm. you, you have some administrators, uh, unfortunately, who also uh, have some implicit bias and they're not protecting these students. And the students are being bullied in school or called terrorists mm-hmm. or told that they don't belong here. You don't belong in our country. This is my country. Um, there are signs that are intimidating I know that in uh, this was maybe two years ago, I went and did a training in the northeastern part of our state. And what was happening was as a group of students would pull up in a bus because they were in the one of the uh, choice programs, the Confederate flag would be worn by students at the school and held up in their face. Like, you don't you don't belong in our school. You're being bussed in and you're not mm-hmm. a part of our community. So I went out and I did a training at that school and it was so beautiful because a lot of times it's people are they're fearful and they don't have information and so when I went to talk to the school of course I even had a little bit of fear because I was like well I'm a person of color I'm being sent out to to this school where these kids have said that they're a part of the Klan and they refer to themselves as white supremacists and now I'm the one that's being sent out here to do the training (laughs) And so I was like, like, make sure in two hours, if you don't hear from me, then there's a problem. Somebody's got to show up. Someone come and get me. And so, but it was, it was really interesting because as, when I talked to them, you know, we went through the room and the kids Mm -hmm. were like, I'm a white supremacist. And I just believe, you know, that it's wrong. And, and, and I said, but what is it that you're saying is wrong? And one of the kids said, the blacks and the, the Jews, um, enacted that civil rights, 1964 act of, (laughs) And so I'm listening Long to them. before they were even born. <laughs> this is 1964 act, that civil rights, that's the problem. And it was the blacks and it was the Jews. And I said, where is your history teacher? Where, where is the history teacher? How many blacks and Jews were there in D.C. to <laughs> enact the law that you're in referring to? In 1964. That, that, is, that is a problem. Let's start with that. Okay. But it was good. And it was a, it was a technical school they shared some of their work they got mm-hmm. over and then then it turned into well you you, you are different from right. the other people who look like you and that's why so we like you but we still don't, don't like, like any like, other right. people we don't like <laughs> black people we don't like jewish people and we don't like hispanics and we we don't we don't like but because you're, you're different. different right and, and I how do we get past that yeah and it was it was it that's was our biggest thing it's like will we ever i'd like to be run out of business if our if our mission is to eliminate discrimination, I'd love for my last breath to say I completed my job. Yes, but I don't see it happening. You're going to be breathing you know, for a long time. I don't, I don't see it happening. Well, you know that goes back to 
what a family member said to me. You can't legislate feelings. Right. And you can't legislate social issues. You know, you can prevent somebody from being lynched, but that doesn't necessarily keep them from saying, you know, I want to lynch you. Right. So, you know, it, it, it really is a home parenting type yes. issue. And education. People yes. just need to be more open minded. I think they just don't see each other yeah. because we're a lot more alike than we are, we are different. Yeah. And you can change hearts and minds through experiences mm -hmm. because the problem was that those students had not had many experiences with a person of color, color. with a yeah. black person, with a Hispanic yeah. person. And so their thoughts about people of color, about black people, about Hispanic people, about Jewish people came from their parents who they said were all were, you know, that our parents are racist and this is what we hear at the dinner table. Right. And this mm -hmm. is why we feel this right. way. But I have a, a happy ending to this story. <laughs> so by the time we finished our training, which I did with the uh, governor's prevention um, partnership. Mm -hmm. Familiar. Yeah. Yes. That, that training, by the end of it, those students, they were, they said, you know what? We, we, we're sorry because we just, we realize that we're. I, I'm going to go home and talk to my parents because I, I see that what they're saying they may not be right. Mm. That that there is some value, you know, and that these people have that conversation. So it's it's and to see where they are today. Where they are today. <laughs> so they right? actually went and trained. They put together these same Wonderful. kids who proclaim themselves as white supremacists because I got a call from the school. They put a training together because a lot of their parents worked at the same company. Mm. They put a diversity training together for that particular company where their parents wow. worked. And so because they said, wow, we never we didn't realize w how much we didn't know. And how much we have in common. And how much and we how have in common. How much we have in yes. common. Mm -hmm. And it was it was it was a good conversation because my, my dad was also a carpenter and these kids were some of them were carpenters mm. and some were masons. And I, I said, let me see your work. I said, we see how we are. We have more in common than you think, because this is the profession that I was raised mm -hmm. on. And I decided that I wanted to become an attorney, even though my, my dad, you know, decided that he wanted to be a carpenter and he had his own carpentry company. And I said, see, so we're really coming from the same or similar mm -hmm. stock. And do you, do you guys see that? And it was and, and then they said, well, no, but it, then it's because you're a woman. <laughs> and I said, I have four brothers <laughs> and I'm sure I am not the only one who has successful brothers. And right. it's not, this is not, this is not unique to the shark family. Right. This is you needing to go out and have experiences with people who don't look like you. Right. And talking who have with those a different folks. background than you have. And you can actually see and your mind can become open it's just like when we did a training at a, a mosque in Meriden. Mm -hmm. So normally I go in, I do the training, and then I'm off to the next event. But I said, you know what? I'm going to stay because I had some fear going in. I wasn't afraid of anything in the mosque. I was afraid of the people who Outside. had disdain for the people in the mosque. And I said, I don't want to be caught up in that disdain because really I'm coming here to train. But then once I got in there, I realized how compassionate mm -hmm. and, peaceful. and peaceful the people in that mosque were. Really were. And I ended up staying, and that opened and broadened my mind. Mm -hmm. So it is really through experiences that you can change the hearts and minds of people. And we've been doing a lot of alliances with the Muslim community, trying to also help educate the public about who they really are and that they aren't just 
known for being terrorists, that they really are peaceful people. And I think we've made a lot of strides. Yes. And if as a, if as a country, if as a state, we can separate the Ku Klux Klan from Christianity, then we can separate Muslims from ISIS. Absolutely. So if people want to keep up with you and what's going on and, and the budget, how do they do, do that? Go to Facebook, to the CHRO Facebook page. Follow us on on Twitter, and it's CTCHRO. They can also check on our state website, which Tanya gave you earlier, which is ct.gov backslash CHRO. Correct. And that will inform you of if you have a complaint, depending on where you are in the state, it'll direct you to the proper regional office, et cetera. So 30 seconds, Harry, can I, can I get 30? Okay. What is the next step for you all? The with next this budget step process? is to try to maintain our budget so that we can refill at least three of the critical positions and not have to lay off any of our staff. We want to maintain our municipal uh, uh oversight of the municipal uh, set-aside program, Mm -hmm. and we also want to maintain and keep intact our mediation program and not have it subjected to, you know... Tinkering. Exactly. So the the next thing we'll have is a subcommittee hearing with appropriations. The public, I don't think, is invited into that, but we'll be called in, and we have several questions that we have to respond to. Uh, We have until February 20th to get those responses into that committee. Uh, and then they'll probably have more public hearings. Appropriations will be having hearings for the next uh, two weeks. So any uh, letter that could be sent in to whoever your representative or senator is that is supportive of the commission would be helpful. Uh, there are several bills that we're testifying on um, that we have already testified on that will continue mm-hmm. to testify on uh, related to our our statutes and what we do as an agency. Uh, and so we have a rough road ahead of us. We don't think we should be cut um, at all. And we understand we're in a budget crisis, but we we have already sustained substantial cuts consistently yes. throughout the years. You know, when other agencies have been able to refill vacant mm-hmm. positions, we have not. It's it's unheard of that you have a regional office with no head. Yeah. You know, this yes. has yeah. gone on almost a year now. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. And 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 we're still being held to the same standards. So, you know, we just have to be allowed to be respectful to the employees as well. This is an undue strain on yes. the staff. And we're asked to to cut something. But what can you cut? Should we not? We have 26 protected classes. Which ones should right. we delete? Should not be served. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that, that's not appropriate. Should we stop helping kids in schools who are being discriminatorily bullied? Should we stop working on racial profiling? We can't stop anything that we're doing because it's so critical and vital to the state of Connecticut and its citizens. Cheryl Sharp is the deputy director for the Commission of Human Rights and Opportunities. And Tanya Hughes is its executive director. And we want to thank you for being here this morning. Certainly, I was enlightened. Thank you for having us. And I hope that the public will continue to follow you. We'll come back as often as you need. As a matter of fact, we'll put links uh, on our public access uh, site so that those letters can be populated, et cetera, to make it easy for the public to assist us. Thank you. I appreciate your time and energy. Thank you. Thank this you. has been the show 
on 103.5 FMLP. I'm Michelle Turner. See you next week.